Hi, welcome to The Apologist Bookshelf. I'm Gary Zacharias. I'd like to introduce you to another book, and you may already know this one. It's by Tim Keller. It's called The Reason for God. came out uh, 2008, I think it was. Subtitled, A Belief in an Age of Skepticism. And if you haven't read any of Tim Keller's work, boy, I hope you have a chance to. He's a good thinker. He's an apologist. He's a pastor of a church back in New York City called Redeemer Presbyterian. He founded it. I think he's actually retired now at this point. But what I like is he's trained leaders to start more than 300 new churches. So he's his goal was not just to make a big church and to lord it over other churches. He wants to keep pushing that message out. And so I like Tim Keller a lot. He, he really makes you think. He quotes from uh, interesting secular people as well as Christians. So at the beginning of The Reason for God, this is in his uh, intro, he said, we're living in a divided culture. He said people are walking away from Christianity, at least some of the, the old-line Protestant churches, and going to no faith at all. And he said doubt and belief are each, each on the rise. Now we have to recognize that. Yes, there is doubt that's rising, but so is religious faith. And so he says, you know, one thing we should do as Christians is to think about what's gone on. Why have so many people walked away from Christianity? And so he, he says, uh, let, let's consider doubt. Both Christians and those who don't believe look at doubt uh, in a traditional way, and they should look at it in a new way. Like tradition, let's start with believers. Tradition, the idea is if you have doubts, there's something wrong with you. You just need to suck it up and, and have more faith. But he said a faith without some doubts, like a human body without any antibodies in it. He said believers should wrestle with doubts. You know, Greg Kokel said... You want to study apologetics so that you can confront the most ardent critic of Christianity that you're ever going to meet, and that's yourself. So he says, okay, so Christians need to confront their doubts and realize that they have doubts, but skeptics themselves have, have a burden there as well. They have their doubts, but really their doubts are just a set of alternate beliefs, and that's based on a leap of faith. So he says, if you're going to doubt Christianity, okay, fine. But think about the alternate belief that exists under each of your doubts and ask yourself, what reasons do you have for believing them? He says it seems kind of inconsistent if you're going to require more justification for Christian beliefs than for your own. But he said that really does happen. So the rest of the book, what he does is in the first half, looks at seven objections to Christianity and doubts. Then the second half of the book, he examines reasons that underlie the Christian faith. So let's start in. Let's just do, I'm going to have to go pretty quickly over it because there's a lot of material here. But uh, I've written on these same topics myself. And if you go to my website, apologeticsforlife.org, you can find some of my writings and some of my videos on this same topic. And that is, there can't be just one true religion. That's chapter one. That's an objection. It's the idea of object uh, exclusivity. And he says, all right, so religion can hurt peace on earth because people all claim they've got the right religion. So how do you deal with that? How do you struggle with the divisiveness of religion? He said, well, there are three three ways. Um, he said you could outlaw it, condemn it, or maybe just privatize it. So let's start with outlawing religion. That would certainly get rid of the problem, wouldn't it? That would get rid of divisiveness. So he says, look at the countries that have made huge attempts to outlaw religion. Russia, China, Khmer Rouge. And he said, 
How'd that turn out? Well, they didn't end up with more peace and harmony. They ended up with more oppression. And so he says Christianity is growing. There's something going on inside people and other religions as well. The, the religion is not just a temporary thing to help us adapt our environment. It seems to be something central and basic to the human condition. So trying to outlaw it is not going to work. Well, what about condemning religion? Maybe through education, through argument, maybe we can discourage religions. Can we find ways to uh, and have people think about, well, we have a bunch of ways to faith. They said, uh, so then if you make an exclusive claim that you're looking bad, he says, here's a way to try to kind of make us all seem the same. All major religions are equally valid, and they just teach the same thing. Really? A religion that teaches child sacrifice, doesn't that seem inferior? He says anybody that, that claims that they're just superficial differences, they haven't really investigated Judaism or Islam or Buddhism and Hinduism and Christianity. It's not the same God. It's not the same Jesus. It's not the same afterlife. Everything is hugely different. Some people say, well, religions just see part of the spiritual truth, but they can't see the whole truth. So they give the story of the blind men and the elephant. You know, several blind men are, are touching an elephant, different parts of the elephant, and they start squabbling about what the elephant really is. But finally, uh, uh, the, the Raja or the mayor of the town comes and says, be quiet, be quiet, you're all just seeing a part of the truth. But he says, you know, that illustration actually backfires. I mean, think about it. It's told from the point of view of somebody who is not blind. How could you know that each blind man only sees part of the elephant unless you can see the whole elephant? How could you know that there is no religion that sees the whole truth unless you have some kind of superior knowledge? That's pretty egotistical, isn't it? Okay, so he says, um, it's arrogant to insist your religion is right. Well, all religious claims uh, to have a better view of things are arrogant and wrong is arrogant and wrong. Some people say, well, it's ethnocentric to claim our religion is superior to others. Isn't that very statement, ethnocentric? Other non-Western cultures have no problem saying their culture and religion is best. That idea that it's wrong to do so is, is rooted in our Western tradition of self-criticism and individualism. So we're doing the thing that we forbid others to do. Skeptics say, well, any exclusive claim to superior knowledge of a spiritual reality can't be true. But see, that's a religious belief. It says God's unknowable. Well, how do they know that? So that's an exclusive idea. Well, what about the third possibility? So it seems pretty difficult to outlaw it. It seems pretty difficult uh, for his second point, which was to condemn it. What about the third one? Keep religion private. So they say, you know, secular reasoning, that's universal and that's available to all. But as he points out, a man named Stephen Carter of Yale said, you can't leave religious views behind when you do any kind of moral reasoning at all. Says, really? Are you saying that all organized religions, that they alone, unlike everybody else, must enter public dialogue only after leaving behind the most important part of themselves? I mean, after all, what's religion? It's a set of beliefs that explains what life is about, who we are, and what we should be doing. That's a worldview. It's a set of faith assumptions about the way things really are. So faith, in some point, in some way, is a view of the world and human nature that everybody 
has. Pragmatists say we ought to leave our deeper worldviews behind and find consensus. But our view of what works is determined what we think people are for. Hmm. Okay, maybe we're stuck on that. Somebody said it's really hard to construct an airtight barrier between religiously grounded moral discourse and secular discourse. Secular grounds for moral positions are just as controversial as those in religious grounds. And actually, you can make a pretty strong case, and I know Kokel has done this as well, that all moral positions are at least implicitly religious. So if you insist that religious reasoning has to be excluded from the public square, that's controversial. That's a sectarian point of view. You can't leave your convictions about what ultimately uh, you value. You can't leave that behind when you come in the public square. So he says, many keep calling for this exclusion of religious views from the public square, but increasing number of thinkers are admitting that that is actually a religious position itself. So at the end of the chapter, now that he's made us kind of worry about these things, he has a subheading called Christianity can save the world. He said, yeah, religion can be a threat to world peace. But he said, within Christianity, now he's talking about traditional, robust, orthodox Christianity, there are rich resources to make its followers become agents for peace on earth. For example, he said, Christianity itself provides a firm basis to respect people who have other faiths. Jesus assumes that non-believers in the culture around him would gladly recognize Christian behavior as good. And he gives some references, Matthew 5, 16, and it's also in 1 Peter 2, 12. So Christians believe everybody's made in the image of God. Then, as a result, we do expect non-believers are maybe better than any of their mistaken ideas. Christianity not only leads its members to believe people of other faith have goodness and wisdom to offer, that many will lead lives that are morally superior to the Christians. Good heavens, I admit that, definitely. I know people who are non-believers, and they put me to shame. So that's because we recognize God is out there. He's placed eternity in our hearts. We are created to be in the image of him. And uh, we're all in this together, as we say. Christian believers should expect to find non-believers who are nicer and wiser and better than they are. I have. Christian believers are not accepted by God because we're morally superior. You know, we've done better things. We've helped moral ladies across the street, whatever it is. We're accepted because of Christ's work on their behalf. We, we admit we are fallen. We're broken people. Some people say, well, fundamentalism leads to violence. But the question is, which fundamentalists are going to leave uh, lead their believers to be the most loving and receptive to those with whom they differ. Well, one of the paradoxes of history is between the beliefs and practices of the early Christians compared to the people around them, the culture. The Greco-Roman world, their religious views were really open and it seemed very tolerant, but it was brutal, the practices. The, you know, they, they put their young to death and, it was, and the women were treated terribly. Christians said there was only one true God, and their lives and practices, though, even though they seemed to be very exclusive, were warm and welcoming to the ones that got marginalized. Early Christians mixed with different races and different classes. They took on the poor. They gave generously, even though the Greco-Roman world despised the poor. 
Women at that time had a low status, but Christianity gave them more security and equality than it existed in that world. Christians were the ones that took care of the sick and the dying. So he says toward the end of the chapter here, at the very heart of their view of reality, talking about Christians, was a man who died for his enemies, praying for their forgiveness. He said, if you reflect on that, that leads to a radically different way of dealing with people that are different than you. We're not supposed to act in violence and oppression toward our opponents. Now he says, the force of Christians' most fundamental beliefs can be a powerful impetus for peacemaking in our troubled world. So that's the first chapter. What are some other things that he tackles in the book? Because he's got a lot of great chapters. Here's some other uh, questions that come out. How could a good God allow suffering? Christianity is a straitjacket. The church is responsible for a lot of injustice. How could a loving God send people to hell? Science has disproved Christianity. You can't take the Bible literally. So if these questions have come up in your life or in friends of yours, I highly recommend this book. Again, Tim Keller, K-E-L-L-E-R, and it's called The Reason for God. No wonder it was a bestseller. It'll make you think and make you appreciate Christianity all the more. Well, I thank you for being part of this uh, podcast and I hope you have a good day.